the rest of the world knows how important land reform is to global development, why don't we here in America? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. With all the focus on domestic politics, plus the fact that we've all been out of school for a long time, you may not have taken much notice of the remarkably neat regularity of borderlines crisscrossing the continent of Africa, straight across, up and down. You probably never stopped to think how they got that way. Well, the explanation lies in European, not really African history. The people and nations of Africa were largely irrelevant to the creation of those lines and their imposition. Actually, they were part of a European dynamic called the Scramble for Africa, also known as the Partition of Africa or the Conquest of Africa. It was the annexation, invasion, division, and colonization of most of Africa by Western European powers during the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. The drawing of lines without popular consent is hardly limited to Africa. And closer to home, in my own experience growing up in the 50s and 60s, I remember when there was something called the middle class. Really? (laughs) It was large, strong, and widespread. Unlike today, where there's virtually no middle class, one is either wealthy or struggling. One can see the examples of this in huge properties in the hands of a few and smaller units crammed into much smaller areas. Despite the centuries-long tradition of a small upper class in control of imperialism, people all over the planet have always shared a desire to have a say over their nation, their present, their future, to feel like they're part of shaping their future the denial of which has created wars, lots of them. Our guest today, Joe Goldie, has been professor of history at Southern Methodist University and is about to skip over to teach quantitative methods at Emory University in Atlanta. And her new book is The Long Land War, which tells the story of the democratic ecology movement, a global revolution that would bring food, water, and shelter to all. Imagine. And it can be done. The book catalogs a diversity of movements and reformers, Irish peasants, Hindu saints, development analysts, academics, uh, economists, indigenous farmers, squatters, and digital activists. Her essay, which uh, is in the Boston Review and also republished in History News Network, is titled The Earth for Man, subtitled Redistributing Land Was Once Central to Global Development Efforts and should be today. And as with so many of today's frustrating problems, at its heart seems to be imperialism and colonization. As our guest writes, sick with poverty bequested them by empire, they demand equal access to the earth. Equal access to the earth. Maybe that's an idea whose time has come. Though not the only European imperial power, the goals of the British Empire seemed to rule not just the waves, but the entire world for a long time. The world was something there to serve its wants. If millions of people suffered because of it, well, that was an acceptable price to be uh, a superior power, bringing them the benefits of civilization. Mm -hmm. And though it is not 
formerly Great Britain calling all the shots today. We still have the structure of neoliberalism imposing its will throughout the globe. Uh, our guest's essay reveals that efforts to undo this tradition first took shape on an international scale in 1951 at the United Nations with something called the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Joe, uh, Professor Goldie. Uh, what was the goal of the FAO, uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization? How did it seem to fit with Franklin Roosevelt's earlier stated goal of freedom from want as an American value, a way to effectively bring more stabilization and democracy to the world. Well, it's such a pleasure to be here with you today, Bert. Um, I'm delighted to talk about it. So the, the Food and Agriculture Organization, which we pronounce the FAO, rhymes with now, uh-huh. um, was, was founded in Montreal and then relocated in Rome um, uh, in the 1950s uh, as a coordinating organization for all matters having to do with agricultural price or surveying land or land and agriculture policy or ending food. Motto of the FAO uh, emblazoned on their logo was Fiat Panis, to play on fiat, Luke, let there be light at the beginning of the world, at the beginning of the new world, there, it's let there be bread. Uh-huh. We're imagining an era in which there will be no famine, mm. in which the millions dead of the 19th century famines associated with British Empire will be a thing of the past. And the founders of the FAO are, in fact, many of them British, uh, but they are British subjects, subjects of British Empire, who have been thinking hard about the legacy of poverty and famine in Britain itself, in the slums, in across British Empire and India. Um, and they've been writing about the way in which those famines are interwoven with empire. So, for example, John Boyd Orr, Nobel laureate in economics, author of The White Man's Dilemma, which is a little bit of a scary title, but I'll unpack that in a minute. Uh, he's, he's the founder. He's been involved in campaigns for nutrition and school meals in the UK. Uh, and he's appointed the first director general of the FAO. And he publishes this book, The White Man's Dilemma, um, in which he says the problem of British Empire, and of all European empires is the confiscation of territory. It's that land has been stolen from the people who live there. And unless we give the land back in some fashion, we give it back in Africa, we give it back in India, we give the resources that are necessary for production back to the people who live there. If we don't do that, then we are going to engender a never-ending cycle of violence, and we will pay the price later in a different way. So John Boyd Orr is advocating what what contemporaries call land reform or agrarian reform, giving the land back to the people. The second director general who follows follows John Boyd Orr is Norris Dodd. He's an American, and he makes the slogan, Earth for Man. That's the title Uh of my article, Mm -hmm. Earth for Man. And he's... Uh, he he says that the the slogan of the United Nations should be Earth for Man, meaning we redistribute the Earth to the people, we reverse the sins of empire, 
in distinction to the nationalist slogans of the early 20th century as explicitly against Germany for Germans or America for Americans. Does that sound familiar? Contemporary yeah. slogans of the 1940s. We should all move towards Earth for man. And I say in the article, you know, this sounds a little old-fashioned to us today. Man is gendered. Right. Should, but what if we say, translate that, and we say the Earth for humanity, exactly. the planet Earth for everyone. You know, it's still, it's still a little... It's still a little bit of a humanist position, you know, also the planet Earth for all living creatures. But I think we can take inspiration from these slogans, from this moment of founding. Yes. And yeah, there's so many examples of that, not just from British. I mean, the most obvious example of the British uh, policy was uh, their uh, approach to Ireland and people in Ireland. Gosh, what a surprise. They got a little bit angry at the British. And what they did united, as, as you say, united the distant corners of the decaying British Empire, which was all over the world, into a single march for justice. And as you describe what's needed and, and being anti-nationalism, the rise of nationalism, especially here in the currently United States, uh, is is disturbing, and it's you know, in, it's like the direct opposite of what you're talking about here. That uh, I mean, there are people who who want to you know put up a wall on the border and keep out those others, and the reality is, the world is filled. We're all others. We're all just humanity, and and yet the the rise of nationalism is it's not exactly imperialism or colonialism, but it's. It's not far off, and it's kind of ugly. And uh, uh, so, the, the back to the FAO, the U United Nations FAO. How much actual power did the former colonies have over their own future? Did they have? I mean, there was there was India and Ireland and all those other, uh, you know. Plus, uh, the the Germans had their uh, you know desire for power. Yes. Yeah, so the FAO then, as now, provides technical assistance. It's not a very powerful organization. Most of what it does is to provide policy advising for member nations who are rewriting their agricultural policy or their price policy um, around commodities like soy or wheat or corn. Um, but bureaucracy has a certain amount of power. And the fact that the, a bureaucracy was established with the idea of serving member nations, that was baked into the founding of the United Nations, uh -huh. um, it meant that the member nations could dictate what they asked the file for. The file isn't going to provide a map unless the member nations want a map. Uh, it's not there as an imperialist organization. It's there as a service organization. And the fact that many nations, at the closure of the Second World War, were announcing their independence right. from European empire, but that many of those nations were setting up ministries of agriculture and agricultural policies for the first time, and they wanted, they wanted knowledge, they wanted maps. Many of them wanted the same kind of map, and you could efficiently ask some geographers at European or North American universities to make appropriate soil maps for Africa that would serve all of the African nations, and this was done. That was the sort of activity that the FAO was really good at. Mm -hmm. but the FAO is still really good at today, I should add, because they're still around and doing this kind of work. Americans hear about it very rarely, yeah. um, partially for the reasons that I discuss in the book. We talk about 
about the foul a lot less because there was a moment in which American policy and the workings of the foul seemed to be um, to be opposed and led to a showdown. Yes, yeah, sort of the the, the opposite of uh, you know Trump's nationalism and the, and the popularity of of uh, nationalism these days. Uh, just close the door. Very different from uh, the America that, or at least the aspirations of America that I grew up with. And we don't we don't have direct empires these days or, or colonial uh, countries. But so there's. I wonder about institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. They're they're about helping to developing nations have stronger economies. At least allegedly, that's what they're for. How? What, what about the, the IMF and the World Bank? Um, uh, do they apply some of these good ideas behind land reform, or are they more uh, toward, the, uh, t- toward the old uh, empires? And uh, wh- where, where do those uh, two institutions uh, stand? Because they, they have a lot of power. So most of my lifetime has been the era of in which the World Bank and the IMF were on the ascendancy relative to the power of other international institutions like the FAO or UNESCO or the other arms of the United Nations, which, which ostensibly serve all of the nations of the developing world. And uh, the United Bank and IMF are, are the financial inst- institutions which are in charge of um, uh, economic policy. And in the era after 1974, in which they've been ascendant relative to these other international institutions, um, they have replaced the policies that I'm describing, the policies of an earlier era, with the policies of the free market. Sometimes uh-huh. they refer to these as free market land reform, but it's not a land reform. It doesn't redistribute land. It means spending money on surveying, and then encouraging international companies to come in and buy up all of the land, which yeah. puts it out of the, the out of the reach of ordinary householders or farmers or or capitalists in in places like India. Um, and when that happens, you you don't get the collateral effects of land reform. There's World Bank data uh, that says that when land reform takes place, the Gini coefficient goes down, which means that a rising tide floats all boats. If there if there's economic growth, it's broadly dis- distributed. But we have been pursuing this in this free market land reform policies that tend to drive up uh, the Gini coefficient. So more and more equal, the, the returns of economic growth go into the hands of the few. Yes, the, the free market. Mm-hmm. Boy, you know, it, it, it's, it's amazing how, you know, trickle down and and solutions to be all solutions to be found in the in the free market workings. People still buy that stuff. It doesn't work. It really doesn't work. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive, and I'm very pleased to have with us uh, Joe Goldie, uh, professor of history and soon to be professor of uh, quantitative methods at Emory University in Atlanta. And she wrote an article in the Boston Review uh, and uh, History News Network called The Earth for Man. It's uh, taken from her new book, The Long Land War. And land reform is what we're discussing. And it's not something that's you know, much in the news, but it's really important to people all across the world. And you know, in my lifetime, one of the big 
issues in the late 60s, early 70s, of course, was the American War in Vietnam, which followed directly after the French War in Vietnam, both of which imperial uh, countries lost to the people of Vietnam. Uh, that The issue of land reform was significant, I believe, in those wars. Were they not? And tell us about the, the place of land reform in, in those wars in Vietnam. So before Vietnam, America supported what we call land to the tiller land reforms. Those are redistribution programs where you take the land that's owned by a few feudal families. And America actually supported dividing up uh, that land into smaller farms and redistributing it to small farmers, uh, thus creating economic opportunity. Uh, and this happened in Taiwan and Japan and to a limited extent in the Philippines. It was, it was very popular. It was very permanent. In the Philippines, the issue was that the, the land redistribution just didn't go far enough. Um, but in the era of Vietnam, there was a turning point and about face. And the reasons for that are are very particular to what was happening in the 1960s. So one of the issues is a fear of communist creep, of uh, global communism, the domino effect taking over uh, all of Asia and also Latin America. There are also fears about overpopulation, which are being promoted by a handful of American scientists who are looking at a certain set of data which says the population is growing and we're going to overwhelm the Earth's carrying capacity. There's another set of data that says if we just have enough small farmers, we will be just fine. We will be absolutely just fine, and those farmers will be better able to take care of themselves, but they're ignoring that data. Um, they're also very fearful because there's been, there have been massive famines in the Soviet Union and India and China, which have sparked further fears about famine and goaded these fears about overpopulation. And then there are new schools of economics associated with what we would now call liberal, neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that have been pitching American foreign policy to this enormous shift. And the shift is that America stops promoting land to the tiller land reform. And instead it starts promoting the Green Revolution. And what the Green Revolution means in this case is industrial farming, larger farms, tractors, American improved seeds, American pesticides. They produce a lot more wheat, a lot more rice. That's a good thing. But they put hundreds of thousands of farmers out of business. Those individuals have no more jobs. They go to the cities because they're driven from the countryside, not because there are jobs in the cities waiting for them. This creates global slums. Um, I'm summarizing here the work of Nick Cullither uh, and Mike Davis. Um, But this is a really important moment to understand because American policy has this turning point, the turning point from being in sync with ideas that are current in Europe and current in India and China about what needs to happen. Land needs to be redistributed to small farmers. And it's a shift to this this attitude of bigger is better and we which is very good for American corporations. It's great for American tractor companies. It's great for American pesticide companies. It's very bad for the farmers of the developing world. And that's what so many of the protests and social movements today are still about. Oh, how interesting. It sounds so pretty, Green Revolution, but uh, yeah. Hmm. Interesting how American policy uh, benefits uh, American corporations. And Wow. But then in the long run, it's really... It, it's not in our interest. I mean, stability 
in those other countries, I would think, you know, really is in our interest. Uh, and interesting how you mentioned, you know, communism, the fear of communism that shaped so much foreign policy in the in the 1950s. And it was 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 it uh, was communism? I mean, there was you know real fear of it, the real panic, the the Red Scare, the second Red Scare in the 50s. Uh, you know, these these revolutionaries in so many parts of the world had focused on land reform, and I, I wonder how often. And how harmful it was that they were just labeled as as communists. Uh, tell us about uh, the fear of communism and how it may have affected the uh, the FAO recommendations. You know, it was really important at the FAO when it was founded that the FAO chart a path in between communism and capitalism. So one of the founding, she's not one of the founders of the, the FAO, but one of the founding intellectuals who's influential at the FAO is a woman named Doreen Warriner, who's very interesting because she has another life uh, inventing the kinder transport, which, which saves... Ah hundreds of Jewish children from the clutches of the Holocaust and then transports them to Canada. So she's a hero. She also has a PhD in economics. And so at the end of the Second World War, after that, she turns her eye to land reform and she becomes a consultant associated with Nafal and with many post-colonial nations. And she she is the person who gives us the language of the third way. She talks about land reform as a third way in between communism and capitalism. Because when we're talking about land reform. We're talking about not stealing land from the rich. We're talking about giving the the rich a fair price for land in order to create homes and farms for ordinary people, to create economic opportunity by a transfer of ownership, a legal, nonviolent transfer of ownership. Um, so she's, she's the person who establishes this as doctrine. It becomes embraced as a doctrine this way uh, at the United Nations uh, by people who are thinking about what's happening in India. They're thinking about the Mexican Revolution. They're thinking about Irish independence and what's happened in Ireland, uh, where land reform and rent control mm. uh, took the nation of Ireland out of the hands of English landlords and gave it to Irish landlords. So uh, Warner's idea is that that's what needs to happen in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa, uh, as these nations win their independence from European empire. Um, the UN officials at the FAO are very careful to chart a path in between communism and capitalism. And we can see in their letters, you know, people are writing them angry all the time. And there are communist versions of land reform. There are capitalist versions of land reform. Someone is usually aggrieved. Uh, it is a political set of decisions, the same way that eminent domain, we use eminent uh, domain all, uh-huh. all the time in, in America, we did in this period as well, because um, you, you have to use it if you're going to build a highway. Um, uh, and so it's a political decision. The UN answers all of these letters from aggrieved parties, and they make clear that they're not trying to support one ideology over another. They're trying to support the redistribution of land in order to solve larger problems about poverty and the availability of food, which are common to all people regardless of ideology on the face of the earth. And it, uh, I did not know that about uh, Doreen Warner. Fascinating. What... <sighs> Yet another great woman who is 
frankly not all that well known in in history these days and and she argued according to your to your piece that uh, land reform offered a path a path to democratic prosperity which reminds me of uh, what john kennedy said those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable so what did, what did she mean? Was she right? Are there lessons still to be learned? And in what way is land reform somewhere in between communism and and pure uh, you know unleashed uh, untethered capitalism? How how uh, what kind of lessons does that uh, offer that are still to be learned? Perhaps. Well, I think one of the you know we we were learning these lessons about what land reform could offer and what rent control could offer in the 1940s and 50s. If you look back, it's clear that there are people not only at the FAO but at USAID, at Columbia University, at the University of Wisconsin, who are interested in the way in which land is a commons and that an ideal society for democracy in which people have opportunity is broad broadcast and people can control their government and have a chance to participate in their economy, that that depends on some form of access. You have to be able to afford a place to live. Uh, other, if you're homeless, you're not going to be a good citizen. You're not going to be participating in, in government. So this is very well understood by people like John Commons um, at the University of Wisconsin in the 1940s and 50s. It's very well understood at the United Nations. We kind of lose that in the midst mm. of the Vietnam War and the Cold War more generally, in which a, a new generation of of intellectuals comes along who are they're interested in ideal forms. They're interested in extracting, extrapolating ideal communism and the free market against capitalism. And this is something that I've written about in my my uh, my earlier work, which was about Adam Smith and the foundations of capitalism and ideas of infrastructure. If you go back to Adam Smith, it's really clear that Adam, Adam Smith gets that there have to for capitalism to work, for capitalism to be a rising tide that floats all boats, infrastructure has to be a commons. It can't be a toll road because then the poor man can't afford to get to the market to sell his goods with his donkey. You need to have open roads. You need to have sidewalks connecting the city. And that's the only reason that capitalism is supposed to work. It's not just an automatic thing where if we put prices and remove taxes, everyone's going to be rich. That's not how it works. It's not Adam Smith's idea. It's not how it worked in the 18th, during the 19th century. But that's a set of ideas that comes into being in the 1960s and 70s as this kind of, as a fruit of this kind of allergic counter reaction against communism. So, there's also a story uh, about how we remember that the commons is important. And if I may, there's there's another heroic woman economist. Please. So this is Eleanor Ostrom, who, of course, was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics uh, in t- 2008, I believe. Um, so Ostrom is famously the economist who first formalizes the idea of a common pool system. And what she means by that is is a resource, often a piece of land that a community can own and administer in common. So before Ostrom, the teaching was that associated with Barrett Hardin, the tragedy of the commons, that we can't own land in common because if we do, we'll all put our cows in there and the cows will eat up all the grass and then everything will die and then we'll die. Ostrom's, you know, that is, 
not how it, it's worked anywhere in the face of human history. And in 1972, she starts collecting an enormous database. The database is filled with data about every common system that any historian or anthropologist or sociologist has documented. They start with the Swiss grazing commons way up in the Swiss Alps. And how, how were those actually run? Could anybody put their cow in the commons? No, only only villagers were. And there was a limit of how many cows you could put in the commons. And so the cows don't overgraze. The commons is maintained. And we can own this piece of land together. And it's a resource. So she finds out about water commons, forestry commons, fishery commons. And she formalizes the logic. And she says, this is economic thinking. These indigenous people all over the world, women and men alike, came up with economic rules to conserve their resources and to, in some cases, allow for sustainable growth. And we can emulate this and we can learn from this. And if I may, this, uh, if I may sure. uh, leap ahead a little, mm-hmm. this, is, this is, I believe, what is you know, the most important thing to get out of the study of this period of history. The idea of the earth for man um, may, may seem like an unattainable idea if we say, well, we should just own everything in common. But there, there's an economic logic to it. Uh, and Ostrom's thinking can and should be applied to the atmosphere, to the water, and to the land today. I think that is our best hedge against surviving climate change. Yeah, if we uh, recognize that those commons, the oceans, etc., the air, the water, are indeed held in common uh, and must be uh, serving the commons, uh, yeah, I think we'd be a little bit better. We'd be a lot better off today, no question about it. And the fact that it's been out of uh, the control of the commons and, and has been made to serve uh, the few, uh, yeah, we're paying a price for that now. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about really the roots of of, of democracy, how we can keep democracy. It, it relates, of course, to economics and to access to people's government and to their politics. With our, our guest today is Joe Goldie, professor of history at Southern Methodist University, soon to be professor of uh, quantitative methods at Emory University. Her uh, book is titled The Earth for Man, uh, and uh, it's about redistributing land, which was once central to global development efforts and should be today. And this is an idea that, that has resonated all across Earth. For example, a couple of examples. We'll start with Mexico's Emilio Zapata. Why was the cry of Viva Zapata heard throughout the impoverished regions of the Andes? So the land redistributions associated with the Mexican Revolution uh, are the case that most people in Latin America would have been familiar with for most of the 20th century. Uh, Mexico fights the revolution against uh, the feudal form of the hacienda, the landed estate, which they've inherited from from Spanish empire. And in the course of the revolution, many of the peasants who are fighting with Zapata uh, for for freedom, they're fighting because they have... They have deeds to their property, to their farm, which have been ignored by the local judges and the local landlords. They, but they have the papers 
their their peasants with paper deeds to their land. Um, and they don't want those land rights to be ignored. That's why they joined the army. And in the aftermath of the revolution, land is redistributed. Uh, it's redistributed to peasants. It's indigenous rights are respected. And um, these are the famous ejidos of Mexico. They're, they're communal lands as well as private lands. And so across Latin America, the same problem is everywhere. There are haciendas, feudal, feudal estates, which are the remnants of European empires. And so there's a cry to redistribute it. And uh, some of the stories that we have are that it, it, some of this information goes through Hollywood. Hollywood is making movies about Zapata. Marlon Brando is cast as Zapata in films about the, Amer- the Mexican Revolution. Mm-hmm. And uh, the films are shown in tiny movie theaters and villages in the Andes. Oh, wow. uh, and so the, the, pe- the peasants in the Andes in the 1950s have all heard... Latin American history from this perspective, thanks to Hollywood, which is a sort of amazing story. Um, I, I start talking about this because one of the points that I'm trying to understand or recover is that in the 1950s, in this era of land reform, when people are thinking about land reform and the kinds of case studies that should inform American foreign policy or UN policy uh, or how things might unfold, they're not thinking communist China, communist Russia, famine, disaster, Cuba. They're thinking about Mexico as a successful case. They're thinking about Ireland as a successful case. Ireland is in 1881, the first land reform and threat control in world history. They're thinking about India, which looks looks like it's about to turn over all of its land. Indeed, there is a lot of land reform in India. those that triad, Mexico, Ireland, and India, look like the case studies uh, which have the most predictive power over history. Those those are the ideal case of where all of the post-colonial nations might go from the perspective of the 1940s and 50s. And so many of these ideas, as you pointed out earlier, and I, I did want to, to highlight the, the indigenous way of living and the way they had lived and uh, the values that are still applicable to their area, you know, they, they, you know, the, the the white Europeans came in. Oh yeah, we'll civilize you. <laughs> we have to get the Indian out of the Indian, right? Uh, and but but these these are applicable, and that there's a lot that we can learn from them. That you know, they, we the West Western European. I know this may be shocking to some. Does not have a, a superior civilization that has to be imposed on everybody else. We can learn from other people and respect other people, and that can help democracy, real democracy. If anybody, I, I mean, I obviously like democracy. I wouldn't have named this show "Keeping Democracy Alive," which, by the way, was picked before Trump uh, became uh, president. Uh, who knew? And Talk about uh, saving democracy. Uh, I'm reading a book now about uh, Nicholas and Alexander in in Russia. And you talk about uh, the need for land reform Uh, in pre-Soviet Russia. uh, You know, there were starving peasants uh, everywhere. And quite possibly had he enable the redistribution of land, he might have avoided the revolution which brought a so-called dictatorship of the proletariat, which got really ugly, as we know. Uh, And authoritarian governments, 
are, are, are still arising today. They're, I mean, Hungary, uh, the United States, the various places, it, it, they seem to arise from a popular frustration, which are a threat to the objectives of people having control over their own land. But there's this frustration that makes that happen. And I wonder if if climate change you know, and creating so many new millions of refugees and people, you know, it, it ramps up the frustration. Uh, I, I wonder if, uh, you know, the, the drive for authoritarianism uh, may uh, re- be a result from, from some of this frustration when there still are other ways to, to, to deal with the, the land reform, or at least could have been. Your thoughts? Well, I think I think you're touching on a key question here, Bert. Um, so right now, um, our solution to the refugee crisis in most of the world, and it's not just at the Texas border, right? It's not it's not just yeah, an really. American problem. It's, it's we see it in Syria, we see it in Bangladesh, wherever there's a human rights crisis all over Africa. Our solution is to build an impermanent solution. Um, and then to try diplomacy. And the, the finer part, points of diplomacy are treated by other political, political scientists. I won't touch on that. But let's think about those tent cities. We build refugee tent cities as if there's no possibility of developing a plan for where displaced people go in the future. Um, in, the 19, in 1945, when the FAO and the United Nations are being founded, what is vividly clear to all of the founders of those organizations is that they need a global land use plan and for dealing with displacement. Um, and that, that cannot, and then what becomes clear is that that, that land, land use plan cannot result in the displacement of still other people, the kind of land redistribution that we call settler colonialism. Settler societies are societies which require the displacement of other people in order for there to be settlement. Land reform is reallocation of land so that the people in a place don't have to leave. So they want a plan for global land use that will minimize displacement. And that idea that idea is so current. We have the data now to forecast drought, drought and sea level rise. And we just left that data mainly to the private sector. So in the United States, displacement is mediated through insurance. Can you get an insurance policy for your home? Mm. If you're too close to the ocean, uh, maybe not. Maybe you have to move. And then we might have to move at an enormous cost. So we've sort of socialized it to a degree, but it's all run through the private market. And it's not paired with a long-term plan. Um, and this is this is potentially a problem in that food security, water security, and land tenure security are intertwined issues. They're issues for the lands, the small farmers, uh, on a global scale, and the security of the world's small farmers who produce 80% of the food supply in the developed world um, are major major quality of how we will fare in the United States mm-hmm. in the developed with regard to climate change. So if we enter an age of mass displacement with no security for those farmers in the developing world, it's our coffee that's in trouble, it's our cocoa that's in trouble, it's our chia seeds, it's our everything. So the long-term thinking is is a problem that I've thought about a lot. I wrote a book about the disappearance of the phrase long-termism from academic publishing 
Um, that book was published in 2014. Um, not long after that, the phrase long-termism made a comeback in the now infamous circles of Silicon Valley philanthropists associated with the effective altruism mo- movement. Um, they claimed to be using data to back long-term futures. Uh, but when people looked at it, uh, they weren't talking about the survival of actual living humans, like the small farmers of the developing world. That wasn't the long-term future they, the long-termists wanted. Uh, the effective altruism community were more interested in talking about getting the DNA of elites to Mars um, and giving up on the planet Earth. So it's the opposite of the Earth for humanity, the Earth for living creatures, position of land reform. <laughs> My goodness. And I, I'm reminded, oh, I did a show a while ago about how a lot of uh, philanthropies are really uh, colonialist. They really are. And, and you know, it's, it's their ideas and, oh, they know best. They can imply, uh, apply it elsewhere. I mentioned JFK earlier. And in our talking, I was reminded of, uh, I was in Peru in 1977, not that long ago, was it? I guess it was. And I was in a small village uh, that there were a lot of peasants there. I mean, there, there was I, I don't think there was any plumbing, actually. But I went into one little hut and there was a, a, a picture of John Kennedy up on the wall. And that really took me aback. And I was wondering, you know, what happened to that? What? And I will ask you, there was the Alliance for Progress, which at least on the face of it, look like it respected, you know, indigenous people, local people. It's, it seemed to encourage uh, comprehensive land and agrarian reform. Whatever happened to that after Kennedy uh, was no longer uh, with us? So one of, the, one of the stories we have from historians who have studied this period of the Vietnam War is the way in which many right-seeming initiatives for cultivating democracy and prosperity around the world um, were ultimately just smokescreens. Uh, so, for example... Yeah. Yeah, Daniel Immervar, the historian of Northwestern's, written a brilliant book about the fate of community development. Um, so community development is one of those schemes uh, associated with planting community uh, community conversations, community hearings for villagers to get together and talk about where, how they want their community to develop. And it sounds like a kind of Dewey and Town Square, like community values, open hearings, like the sort of thing we value and planting it around the world. That's going to be a good thing. But what Immervar points out is that it was vastly unsatisfying because you were flying American college graduates to the Philippines and all over the world um, to do a showcase garden or to build uh, a a gazebo uh, as a kind of totem to community belonging. But there was no real reallocation of resources. You weren't giving communities control over their tax money or control over their own budgets. Um, And, and so consultation without reallocation of goods is a kind of co-optation. Uh-huh. It's a kind of whitewashing. It's a kind of, uh, it's, it seduces communities into feeling like they mm-hmm. 
have a little bit of power, but there's no real power involved. Every kind of lasting change involves control over actual resources. So communities having control over their own rents, being able to set prices, being able to establish community land or redistribute land. Um, so the, the Alliance for Progress is a kind of murky turning point in the Kennedy is nominally in favor of land to the tiller. Land reforms and USAID is working in a lot of places through the 1950s to support local land reforms. And yet there's a strong tendency uh, to these these ornamental kinds of uh-huh. repair developing world that lack teeth, they never redistribute resources. Um, and, you know, millions of dollars are spent on what's essentially a propaganda campaign mm. for American democracy without pursuing the more effective strategies. So that's something to learn from. I think it's not a total disaster, but it is a pity. It was maybe a waste of resources, given what we know now about what what didn't work in terms of resource allocation. Yeah, ornamental. That's an interesting uh, description of it. I'm I'm not surprised. Uh, I I had a gut feeling that there might be a little bit of that there, but yeah, you explained it uh, a bit more thoroughly. And as we talked about, you know, there there has to be more local participation in shaping land reform, no question. But I wonder about maybe there should be also an increased role for the state in guaranteeing, say, nutrition for the poor, nutrition for the poor, bread for the hungry. That aspect may be essential, an increased role of the state. What about the proper role of state planning in leveling human disparities? Not that that would ever be accepted by uh, uh, American politicians, but (laughs) we're talking in in a, you know, ideal sense, there's some, some aspirational that we can move toward. Well, it, it was it was accepted at one point. Um, you know, if we look at how Congress talked about the word government over the course of the 20th century, uh, invocations of government and bureaucracy up until the 1960s are associated with virtues like diligence and careful review and uh, of budgets, and in order to see that tax dollars are are spent in a meaningful, useful, appropriate way. And after the 1960s, around the time that there's a shift towards free market thinking around individuals like Milton Friedman, um, you get a, a, a duality, a duality in Congress about free enterprise, which is good and free of the state versus big government, which is inherently wasteful. And I, for all of my lifetime, we've been in the era of this du- dualism. Either there's big government and that's red tape, it's bad, it needs to be cut down, or there's the free market that's good, that's original, it's insightful, that's where innovation comes from. Well, the generation that founded the United Nations and the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, the generation that tried to establish land reform, was the generation that still believed in the power of bureaucrats to create lasting structures. This is, this is in keeping with the creation of road networks across mm. Europe, which always involved the state and the state's use of eminent domain, the creation of public parks in cities like London and New York City, which always involved the hand of the state in order to create, again, a common resource for all, the engagement of cities and government to create sewer systems, which eliminated cholera for the first time, again, the hand of the state. In the same way, at the end of the Second World War, land reform programs in most developing world nations attempted to redistribute the land that had been monopolized 
by European colonizers to redistribute it to poor peasants, to turn each peasant into a farmer and then into an entrepreneur. Uh, so this land reform movement attempted to use the state um, to create a new world. And I think what, one of the things that we can... It's, it's, it's an interesting to look back on the, that period of time through the other end of the telescope because we live, you know, we live in an era that's very aware of the wisdom of crowds and uh, local decision making that doesn't involve the state. We live in a world of many to many apps and so on. What the designers of the FAO lacked, uh, lacked was an appreciation for or a technology that could have enabled participatory democracy. You know, nowadays, if we had to start with a clean state slate and design the United Nations anew, we could, there's cell phones all over the world. We could come up with an app for cell phone voting over the face of the entire world. And we couldn't allow every peasant in Peru and every, everybody in East LA uh, and everybody in Texas could get on and vote for the policies that they think most urgently need to be enacted. Some of our tax dollars go there anyway. We could vote on where the taxation was going. We could create a truly participatory democracy as the United Nations. But they didn't have that technology in 1945. So they, they made the technology on the model of the 19th century bureaucracies that had built roads and canals and created the post office and created sewer systems and eliminated cholera, which is there's a big bunker and it's filled with experts who know more than you do. And they're in charge of spending your tax money and they're going to do their best. And sometimes special interests are going to get involved. And the United Nations really tried their best because it was so vital to coordinate between many lobbies. But I, I think it's a really interesting thought experiment. Uh, if you look at, uh, the history of particip participatory democracy and new technologies. The FAO, when it was founded, lacked an appreciation not just for participatory democracy, but also for women's role in owning land. Women own and administer the land in huge parts of Africa. We know that much more now, thanks to the research of anthropologists in the 1960s. And when the film was founded, they lacked an appreciation for the rights of minorities and indigenous peoples in many parts of the world. Um, and we've learned so much more about indigenous ways of owning and administering land. Uh, there's now a robust literature on all of those subjects. Um, and also about the possibilities associated with cooperative land use structures for owning a public park in common or owning a woods as a uh, Native American entity and not as a series of individuals. There's so much more that we know about how land is actively used and administered now that the experts in 1945 didn't know. So there's been a collective learning process in academia, in the literature, that hasn't affected the way we build our institutions. We don't have international institutions. Well, I should, I should temper that. I mean, they're, the experts at the FAO know all of these things. They have learned from them. They have also been on the learning process. But we haven't had the courage to look at the United Nations as a whole and say, well, we know these things now. What if we redesigned these institutions to reflect our values of participatory democracy and the fact that we all have apps on our cell phones and can vote what if we redesigned those international institutions? It's a, it's a bit of a big step. We live in a moment that's not very optimistic about the state, um, but we, we are in a moment that's hugely optimistic about 
big data in the private sector. So I think it's, you know, if you're a thinking person, it's a really interesting thought exercise to say, well, if we invest the same faith in big data in international governance structures, like the wisdom of crowds and of participatory democracy, how would we redesign the United Nations and all of its arms right now? And that would produce an enormous shift. It would be a shift towards participatory democracy, towards the representation of ordinary people, of people across the developing South. Um, yeah. yeah, there's there, it, there's so much possibility. And, you know, I still think the United Nations, as, as frustrating it, as it has been, there's still a tremendous amount of potential that could be there. And for those who may have just tuned in, uh, just real quickly here, our, our guest today is Joe Goldie, uh, and we're talking about uh, an essay that she wrote for the Boston Review uh, titled The Earth for Man, which subtitled uh, Redistributing Land was once central to global development efforts, and it still should be today. Her new book is The Long Land War. There's so much potential here, and trade has always been the economic backbone of imperial nations. It's never been exactly fair trade uh you know we the the, the uh, as you, you mentioned our, our coffee being more expensive and things like that in in the future well that's probably going to happen and the protected wealthy have few have pretty much always en- enjoyed the profits of colonized labor and uh, the wealthy nations still today uh, reap most of the food grown in the soil of poorer nations, and yet there's there's still uh, hunger there. And, and maybe, you know, as we move further into the 21st century, uh, maybe there's more recognition of the benefits, the benefits of a fairer, more cooperative, less competitive agricultural trade. Do you see any signs of this actually happening? So the... I, I think there have been some real uh, interventions in um, agricultural trade. Uh, the prom- For example, over the last decade, we've seen the promise of slavery-free supply chains come of age from just an academic idea to, you know, really you can buy project- products now where, where there are mm-hmm. third-party institutions that verify that your cotton hasn't been picked by people who are living in a state of slavery. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's a huge that is work that data and transparency and institutions and intermediaries are doing uh, for the free through the power of the free market, um, which does create possibilities for better lives. Um, but you know, there's also I think we also live in an age of a lot of fantasy around the power of the free market to correct all kinds of social justice. Like I buy. I buy chia seeds at the market. I'm therefore going to empower Peruvian farmers. And that's, that's not happening. Um, it's not happening because the deals around the chia seed industry are already a foregone conclusion for a certain tiny number of economic players in the agribusiness arena who have been vetted by the, the World Bank who are at the, as of operating end of that trade. Um, but there are quite different avenues if you want to imagine a world where less compet- where more cooperative mm-hmm. agricultural trade exists that could enrich small farmers. Um, so one of the things that I like to think about is, is the Via Campesinas. The Via Campesina is the largest peasant movement in the world right now. Um, it's, uh, it includes all of the landless laborers, all the small farmers, who, are agita- who began agitating for 
the farmers' rights decades ago uh, in the midst of a string of farmer suicides. Mm. Um, so right now, if the Via Campesina wants to go to the World Bank and say, we need your support for these small farmers um, in this region of the world, uh, they they need the tools to protect their land in the courts. They're being challenged by mining companies. Uh, their leaders are being assassinated. We need your protections. First, they have to go through their member nations. They have to go to the government of Brazil or the government of Mexico. And there, they're in a kind of bind because, you know, they're, the Via Campesina is a huge organization on a global level. It's millions of peasants. It may represent up to 20, 30% of the world's population in some speculate, some, some people have speculated. Um, but within Brazil or Mexico, they have their minority group. They have to compete with the middle class. They have to compete with industrial workers. They have to compete with indigenous groups. So they have a hard time getting a hearing uh, and in, with, at the level of national government. So it's a non-starter. But the farmers of the developing world also have their own international caucus. So they get together for diplomacy at a group called the International Land Coalition. And the International Land Coalition, the ILC, is basically a shadow government mm-hmm. on behalf of developing world farmers. It does it does a lot of things that governments do. It creates a census, like they do a census of landless people. They do surveys of landless people. They do education. Those are, they sometimes do security, like they document all of the farmer activists who are getting assassinated um, by by mining companies and so on. So they do a lot of government-like things. Uh, the ILC does diplomacy. They talk to the World Bank. Um, but the ILC isn't allowed to get a grant from the World Bank or take out a loan from the World Bank. They can't touch the money. They can't touch the resources at the World Bank because they're not a nation. They're a caucus. So, so long as we're thinking about institutions, you know, the World Bank is not that old so far as institutions go. The UN isn't that old. And we've invented all of these forms of participatory democracy and technology since then. So one of my other thought experiments is this. If the ILC is essentially already a government, um, what if the ILC were empowered to talk to the World Bank on behalf of landless people around the world as a whole? Um, then we could see some real concessions you know, as a permanent entity recognized at the World Bank. And we'd have to think about that. We'd think about, have to think about the limits of who's allowed to make such a non-nation state entity. But we have this real problem linked to poverty, which is that there are global coalitions of the poorest people in the world, and they are the people who are most endangered by most vulnerable to climate change. They are also the people who produce an enormous amount of the food supply. Uh, how can it be possible that they protect their own rights? I think coalitions recognized by the World Bank is one one configuration that could work. Um, another problem is the lack of representation in global institutions. Yeah. Uh, not just the U.S. versus the rest, that's a part of it, but also minority groups like indigenous groups uh, within the developing world have similar problems. They don't get a seat at the table at the World Bank or the United Nations the way, the, the way things are organized right now. Um, so all of this goes back to your question about trade, because if I'm a conscientious consumer and I want to buy chia seeds that are produced by peasant-owned cooperatives so that my money is going to go to the peasants, right now I can only go through a handful of American importers who are taking the cut. And the ILC 
We're, yeah. we're starting, and, and unfortunately, we've come to the end of our hour here, but there's so much potential we're talking about here, more democracy. There's so much potential. We just you know, have to kind of wake up here, and there's this whole you know, anti-woke movement, and this is something really important here, and it, it's always been there, this, the potential for improving it and making uh, – the earth uh, for all of humanity. It can happen. The book is called The Long Land War, and our guest has been its author, uh, Joe Goldie. Thanks so much for being with us today and uh, an optimistic uh, potential vision that we can strive for. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Bert. It was a great pleasure. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.